Hello everybody, happy holidays and welcome to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me to cast an eye over this past weekend's action is a man from Scotland, a country that might soon be renamed McTominay Land, Graham Ruthven. Graham, how are you doing? I'm not bad, Ryan, but I think Scotland was renamed McTominay Land a, a while ago. We've been living for that with that for, for, for a bit now. <laughs> this is Scott McTominay's world. We're all just living in it, right? Is, uh, this, this has been a pretty special weekend for him, has it not? Yeah, Scott McTominay and uh, John McGinn Shire as, as well as the, as the adjacent land. <laughs> I like it. So how are things in Glasgow at the moment, Graham? Uh, you know, you know not, not great, kind of in keeping with the rest of the world, but we're doing okay. I'm just resisting the urge not to uh, dive into the, the Christmas turkey that's now in my fridge. Uh, before the big day. I had a pal who once uh, mauled a Christmas ham on Christmas Eve after a few drinks, and uh, that did not go down well in his household. Is your Christmas turkey cooked already? No, no. Well, yeah, that would be it. That's a point. I would need to cook it. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I couldn't just go straight into the fridge unless I was being really primal uh, and had a, quite a, a number of drinks. But uh, yeah, I'm still resisting that urge. That's good stuff. Oh, by the way, I, I, there's something I've, I've wanted to uh, say, a little bit of a tip for our listeners. Um, I'm not going to insult you by trying to do a Scottish accent, Graham, but I have a tip for an American accent. If you want to say, if you want to sound like you're saying Spice Girls in Scottish, uh-huh. you say Space Ghettos, Space Ghettos with an American accent. Ready for this, Graham? Yep. Space Ghettos. <laughs> yeah. Space Ghettos. Very good. You like that? There's a bit of Scottish tips for you, for you there, a dear listener. Um, but glad things are going reasonably well in Glasgow and you have not yet tucked into any raw turkey. Uh, let's, let, can I ask you about the, um, uh, on the McTominay thing with the Scotland team, uh, the national team? How, how is it viewed in Scotland? Is it viewed very positively? Uh, obviously, with some good news with um, qualifying for the Euros for the first time in, what, 20-something years. For us, 98, I think, was the last tournament mm-hmm. um, when Scotland were out there with uh, the mighty Neil Sullivan in goal, I might add, at that time tournament but what how does how does the average scott view the national team with with a positive glance or a negative one um certainly more positive now that we've we've qualified for a tournament i think um for a number of years really over the last decade apathy has just been growing around the the national team and and even when we did get over the line and we did win that penalty shootout over over serbia uh last month was that only last month seems longer ago than that but um it still, it, I still feel like it didn't capture the nation in, in the same way it would have 10 years ago. A lot of people have just given up on, on the Scotland national team, to be honest. I think the, when the Euros come round, and let's hope there's fans at those games, and we and mm. and, and obviously um, Scotland are actually hosting a, a lot of games at Hampden Park. So two of Scotland's home games are at Hampden, then the game against England is at Wembley. If fans are allowed to go to those games, I really think that could be a, a turning point. I think that's when the nation will actually start to, to fall in love with this team again. But yeah, it, it, it flipped really quickly for Scotland. Up until October, it seemed like Steve Clark was was really struggling as national team manager. And then all of a sudden, they just found a, a, some good form. And, and uh, yeah, we're, we're off to the Euros. Good stuff. And by the way, England, Scotland, I am looking forward to that one uh, this coming summer. The, the last time that happened at Euro 96, my cousin got married that day, Graham. How, how, how annoying is that? A wedding on the day of the biggest game, the biggest national game, certainly for England, in a very long time. And I had to go to a wedding. Ugh. Was there a TV at the wedding? There was no TV. I was 12 years old. And I remember, I think that someone had a radio, um, but it was, you know, not in the church or anything. So it was, uh, it, it was very much a, this is the wedding day. This is not we're watching uh, the European Championships being held on home soil day, which was kind of rough, I thought. Poor scheduling, if you ask me. 
Poor scheduling, I agree. Well, uh, why don't we move on to some Premier League action, Graham, from this past weekend. Um, and we mentioned Scott McTominay. He was the starring, he had the starring role at Old Trafford where there was a tennis score. Manchester United 6 leads to uh, Man United getting the first set there. This is a big rivalry game traditionally in English soccer, Graham. Uh, Man United and Leeds, they've been waiting a long time to play each other. And uh, this one didn't disappoint, did it? 43 shots between these two sides in this game. A pretty mad back and forth, certainly in the first sort of opening quarter of this game as well. What did you make of this? Opening thoughts on this game, Graham? Oh, it was a brilliant game. I mean, what a stark contrast to the the turgid Manchester derby that we had just a week before where there was very few opportunities, neither team taking many risks and, and really Manchester United and Leeds um, that's all they did was was take risks and, and create yeah. chances. I, I think um, I, I can't remember who it was, but someone said this game could have been could have been ten eight. And you, you hear things like that a lot in football. This game could have been this scoreline, and 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 you kind of go, yeah, okay, but it's not really how football works. Teams miss chances. This could have been ten eight because both teams had about twenty great chances to to score. You know, mm. even if they'd missed a number of chances, this could have been something ridiculous like that. So. A, a brilliant match to, to watch. Um, 14 shots on target. I was reading up 14 shots on target from Manchester United was the most that they've had in a single match since Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, so that tells you a lot about how creative they were, not just Leeds. I mean, we all know how Leeds play. I think there's a lot to admire about how it doesn't really matter what the scoreline is or the situation they're in. They play the same way. Um, that has a downside as well. You saw in this match, but as a neutral watching this, it, it made for a, a fantastic spectacle. It really did, yeah. A real perfect game for the neutrals, as you say there, Graham. And I think that's, you nailed it there with Leeds. They always try and have a go. That's the difference between them and many other teams who are maybe in uh, in their sort of position in the league. They always try and go for it, and it's so entertaining. Uh, and, you know, they're so fit that the last 15 minutes of every game, they're still up for it. And as you mentioned there, they, you know, they, they're 6-1 down at some point in this game, and they still look great. They've still got energy. They're still pressing like they're 1-0 down and chasing an equaliser. So that's that's really good to see. But also... You know, full credit to Manchester United as well. As you mentioned, they got the first goal. They got two uh, two uh, opening goals pretty early on in this game. If you came to this one late, you were unfortunate because it was 2-0 down after, what, five minutes or so. No trademark slow start for Manchester United uh, here. It did seem like Leeds really played into their hands. They Their style really suited Manchester United. Uh, kind of like Paris Saint-Germain's style suited them in that, you know, they were, they were able to you know, often pick the ball up in midfield from, from, from sloppy mistakes there. When, when they went forward and there was a three-on-three, three, United were afforded, like, there wasn't much pressure on them, which is surprising, I thought, from a from a Bielsa side, certainly. And, you know, it seemed like that was, like, the play that Manchester United had. They pick up a ball in midfield, they push forward, and then they try and find that nice cut-through through ball past the back line. That was what they kind of did over and over again, forcing the turnover and doing that. And they got at least a couple of goals out of that sort of technique as well. So that that was good. And the, the curious thing, Graham, is how much praise Leeds got for losing by a four-goal margin <laughs> and conceding six goals. But it wasn't completely undue, was it? Because they were they did look brilliant. And even at halftime when they were, you know, pretty, pretty uh, what was the score at halftime? 4-1. Four, it one, still yeah. felt like it could it could be four four or that it could be five four, didn't it? It still felt like it was on a knife edge at that point. It did. I, I saw a few Manchester United fans tweeting at that exact point at half time, saying, "You know, any other match, four one up, you're thinking this is over." But 
this one still feels uh, like it could swing back towards Leeds. Leeds, not just because of the way Leeds are, but also of, of the way Manchester United are, especially at, at home this season. I thought it was a good matchup for Manchester United. Leeds obviously go with this sort of uh, this man-to-man style where, where you're mm. basically, um, particularly in defence, you know, Bielsa is, is not afraid to trust three defenders against three attackers. And really that was their downfall in this match because when you've got Marcus Rashford, Martial and, and uh, you know, predominantly Bruno Fernandes running at you, those are three pretty good attackers. Your defenders need to be really good individually to, to cope with that. And Leeds, you know, they've got good players, but but not up to that standard. And and so really it just came down to the the quality of the players that they had. I, I, I did think Solskjaer um, pulled one out of the bag a little bit with Dan James starting. I, I saw yeah. the team sheet and I wasn't sure. I'm not sure on Dan James as a whole. He seems like look, he seems like a nice guy, nice young lad. Wish him all the best, but I'm just not sure whether he's good enough for Manchester United. But he does bring something, and and that something is pace. He he bursts into space, and 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 Solskjaer recognised that space was going to be there, and you, you couldn't count on on one hand the number of times James picked up the ball at halfway line, surged you know twenty even thirty yards up the pitch, and and created space and obviously he got his his goal in the end his first goal in in 33 Premier League appearances and I, I felt he he helped set a tone for Manchester United in terms of their their running their pressing as well I mean he brings a lot of energy to that team I saw a statistic afterward that might have been on match of the day Manchester United ran more um in this game but quite substantially I think they ran something like four kilometers more in this game than they had in and any of their last six games, so that was quite clearly a conscious effort from Solskjaer, and, mm. and and really a sign of respect for Leeds. You know, Solskjaer recognised he needed to do something different against uh, Bielsa's team. They asked different questions of you, and while it was a good matchup, I think Solskjaer deserves credit for making that a good matchup for Manchester United. He leaned into that game, and he trusted his players to, that they would be good enough to to get the result that they did in the end. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point on Daniel James. I think maybe for the whole of the midfield, I mean, even Fred, you could see marauding through. He looked like Zinedine Zidane at some point during this game when he was getting onto the edge of the box and just, it, it was it was very impressive stuff. But were they flattered? Were, was Dan James and, and you know even Scott McTominay flattered a little bit by the amount of space that Leeds provided in midfield during the transition? It seemed like for all the quality that Leeds had in this game, they were killed on every counter-attack. They, they, it was, there was so much space and there was, there was so little pressure when Manchester United were going through the middle third of the game, uh, of the pitch. They couldn't, they couldn't handle like a pretty decent passing game that Manchester United had going on as well. And it was, it was um, the man-to-man thing you mentioned there, Graham, how when, when they're given the ball away so cheaply as they did quite a few times in midfield, that was where their problems came in. The first and the third goals were like direct midfield giveaways, if my memory serves me correct. I think it was M- Rafinha gave it away on the halfway line for McTominay to score his opening goal. The Paul Scholes goal, I'd like to call it. Am I right in thinking that? that I think he's got copyright on that kind of blasted low drive, that beautiful drive McTominay did. Scholes did that more than once, didn't he, Graham? Yeah, I think he did. It was it was a brilliant finish. I mean, there's a there's an angle behind it which it kind of swerves away from the goalie. It's very little sort of backlift as well. It was it was a it was a great finish. I actually have seen that a couple of times from McTominay. He does have that. Obviously, the last game I think it was a different sort of finish, but the last game with fans before lockdown I think was a Manchester derby where he scored from about thirty yards after an Ederson mistake. So he he does have a a shot in. And we were talking about the Scotland team there. He plays as a centre back for Scotland which is a little bit frustrating because I actually think, as we saw in this game, he's really good going forward He's for a big guy. And he seems to be getting taller. Is Scott McTominay getting taller? How old is he? Is he 20? 
22, 23. <laughs> is he still growing? Anyway, seems to be getting it's taller. Possible. But the point I was going to make was he's very good. Uh, the old cliche, good, good with the ball for a with a, good at the for a big man um, with the ball at his feet. He has that, and uh, yeah, for I'd, as a Scot, I'd quite like to see him maybe bring something in an attacking sense to our national team. We could maybe win the Euros if he's playing as a number ten. All right, slow down, Graham. Slow down. Calm down. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, he was very good. Um, and for that second goal, particularly, I think it, when he made that really nice run through that Martial put the through ball for, and I think he sort of touched with his right foot and then finished with the left, or maybe it was left and right. But it was beautiful two-footed stuff. It was really, really nice. But it was the point I was getting to was that um, you know these, these midfield giveaways were the problem with Rafinha giving away for the first goal. I think it was Rodrigo gave away the ball in midfield for the third goal, Bruno's goal, which was a nice slam in finish as well that was some more sloppy midfield action there and the fifth goal was interesting as well the Dan James goal actually it was Wan-Bissaka he played the ball in um, from from the right channel into the midfield it was like a sort of aerial ball into McTominay in the midfield and I think the commentators actually said this on the US feed like most most teams wouldn't let you do that they wouldn't let you find that space in the middle of the park like they did there. Uh, and you know, the ball eventually ended up with Dan James, who nutmeg the keeper for that one. So for all, for all Leeds' quality, they did have these issues with, with, the, with, with the space in the midfield, with the not being able to handle what, what uh, Man United were providing with the passes. But I thought they were, I, the, the big surprise for me, Graham, was the, the lack of pressure. The lack of pressure they were providing, particularly in the back line, like um, with Liam Cooper for the first goal, when Bruno's got the ball on the edge of the box, he's just sitting off. He's giving him all the space in the world he wants to, to, to provide the ball to McTominay. And I think there are several other instances of that as well. And for a, for a high-energy, high-pace, high high-pressure side, it surprised me how they kind of sat back a little bit more than I expected in many phases of this game. Yeah, I do wonder how much that is down to... We've seen the last couple seasons around this time of year um, leads drop off a little bit. It tends to happen after Christmas, really, but just maybe because of the level of the Premier League, we've seen it a little bit earlier this season. Obviously, it's a, such a high-energy, high-intensity game that, that leads play under Bielsa that it seems to take a toll on the players. And, and actually, I, I wondered if last season Leeds got away with one a little bit a little bit with the, the lockdown period, obviously, where they, they had some time to, to to recuperate and by the time they came back after lockdown they, they were able to get over the line and I, I wonder if we're just seeing that from Leeds now where their intensity is dropping off not through any kind of change of game plan but just through fading physicality and and especially mm. at the moment where I mean they're playing at the weekend you know playing midweek then boxing day you know then there's games in the 29th then you're into the FA Cup game so it, it, this is an issue that's it's not going to go away for Leeds they do have a decent squad, but nothing. You know, you wouldn't say that they've got players who can come in like for like players and do the same job. So it could be an issue for them, and it wouldn't surprise me if over the next few weeks they actually start to drop off a little bit. That I mean, we've seen it maybe already with poor results against Crystal Palace, and I know they they beat Newcastle United five two the other the other day the other day. So you maybe you don't want to go too far, but. Even in that game, they were quite open in, in that match. So it, it might be something that we see um, over over Christmas and into the new year. Mm. Open but fun, Graham. Open but fun, I think is what we can say. But it is impressive how we're treating Leeds essentially as equals to Manchester United when they come to Old Trafford. And we know, as I say, this rivalry went back a long way, but they really have earned their spot in this league this year. Certainly, maybe a lot more than the other promoted teams. And it does feel like they're going to be pretty safe and at least a, a going concern in the Premier League for another season or two, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think they're a, they're at risk of relegation. Um, 
I, I, I do think, I mean, you know, not that you get some people on, on Twitter, you know how it is on Twitter, very, very quick place for people to be called uh, frauds as a, uh, is old twitter.com and you get a certain <laughs> faction that that want to label bielsa as a fraud I, look before i make the point i make i'm not going anywhere close to that he has invigorated leeds as a city not just as a as, you know the team he's the te- the the fans have a real connection with that team he got them out of the championship after 16 years they play magnificent football that the fans love however leeds under this ownership are a really ambitious club they want to do what Wolves have done. They've even spoken about like what what Tottenham have done. They are a big club, Leeds, of course, traditionally. And I do wonder whether it might actually take someone else for them to take them that next stage. Because even even though Bielsa's football is hugely entertaining, it's not always winning football. You know, they they I I think they would struggle even with a a, a squad that was capable of a top six finish. I think with Bielsa, you you might struggle for a t- for it to actually get get that over the line. And and that's where I think. Leads not talking this season, maybe not even next season. But if they want to achieve their ambitions, then it, it might not be with Bielsa in, in, in charge. Oh my gosh, Graham! I can't so, say anything about against Marcelo Bielsa. That's against the rules of soccer, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Sorry, if, if there's any <laughs> South Americans listening, uh, I'm sorry. So close to Maradona as well. <laughs> I, I get your point, though. I get your point, and you know, Leeds are a very—they're a big club. Uh, lest we forget, you know, they have had m- much success in their history, even as close as what was it, 2000, when they got into the Champions League semi-final. They kind of bet the house and um, uh, put themselves in a very financially precarious position back then. So hopefully, they're a bit more stable this time around. But they are a team who want to be among the upper echelon, and uh, I think they've certainly got designs on that, as you say. Um, before we leave this game, though, Graham, Manchester United now left in third place in the table. We've got Liverpool on top, uh, Leicester in second, Man United in third at the moment. How do you feel? I mean, it, it feels like I, I feel like I'm always on a Solskjaer roller coaster. Uh, one week we're praising him, the next week when they you know, face a, a less expansive opposition and we're criticising him and saying, you know, the Ollie out hashtag starts on that old Twitter.com once again. Where where should we position this Manchester United team under Solskjaer in our thoughts, do you think? Yeah, I have to say, I, I am a little bit of a, a Solskjaer apologist. I, I do tend to go against the grain of the extremism and the hysteria that you, you tend to get against Solskjaer. I, I think a large part of that is down to the fact that Maurizio Pochettino is out of work at the moment and he seems like he'd be a good fit for that job and he'd maybe want that job. I think the best thing for Solskjaer might be actually if he gets a, a job at somewhere like a PSG and then he can maybe focus on, on Manchester United and, and, and have a little bit more time. I, I think things are going relatively well for Manchester United, actually, in the Premier League. I don't, I don't think it, it's quite as bad as a lot of people like to paint it. If you look at the statistics, they, they've uh, the, only Liverpool and City have got more league points than Manchester United since Solskjaer took over. Their current position in the table is the closest they've been to the, the top of the Premier League at, at Christmas since Sir Alex Ferguson. And um, I think that tough Champions League group really um, gave a false impression of their league form because obviously they were they were playing in midweek and those were tough games against Leipzig and PSG and of course it would be remiss of me not to mention the poor result against Istanbul. Um, but in the league they've been going well for 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 a wee while and and actually I think this is a good time now for Manchester United to press on and and you look season on season I think Manchester United are improving. Do I think Solskjaer can win a title with Manchester United? I, I, I have my doubts. But I do think it's reasonable to expect that he might take Manchester United to a point where the last jump for them to become title winners or title challengers is a much smaller, manageable jump. I just think maybe it might take someone 
else to come in and and do that bit. But right now, I think he uh, deserves a bit of credit. He certainly does. He's certainly in credit at the moment with the fan base. Someone who's not in so much credit with their fan base, Graham, Mikel Arteta. Let's move on to uh, Everton's uh, home game against Arsenal. 2-1 to Everton, this one finished. Mikel Arteta used to love getting wins at Goodison Park. Not so much uh, in this one. Arsenal's worst start to a season since 1974-75. Everton have uh, climbed up there. They were up in third. I think they're fourth now because of that Man United result. Arsenal languishing still in 15th. One point from their last five games. What, what's, what is there to say about this, Graham? What is there to say about Mikel Arteta's uh, side at the moment? I, I'll read you a quote that Arteta said after the game. We needed to be quicker and attack the space, and we did that in the second half. We dominated, but it is complicated to attack the low block. Not sure about dominated, Graham, in this game. And um, it seems about attacking the low block does seem to be a, certainly an issue for this Arsenal side. Yeah, I mean, if... if... Mikel Arteta believes his team are, are dominating games. I think he's been beamed in from 2010 when possession stats <laughs> to be the be-all and end-all. We've moved on from that, Mikel. You know, it, it, you need to do something with the ball and, and, and dominance isn't just keeping it comfortably in midfield. I mean, Arsenal are... They are really... In a, I'm trying not to go overboard because you just think they'll get they'll get out of trouble. But you you look at the statistics... And the numbers behind Arsenal's current form, and norm, I think I might have said this before in this podcast. Normally, with a big team, you look, if they're down in the bottom half, you look at the statistics and you see something that suggests there will be a correction in form coming. You look at Arsenal. I mean, they're twentieth for goals scored since the so they're bottom of the Premier League for goals scored since the October international break. They've scored three. Um, they've scored twice from open play in their last ten games. They've created twenty-one big chances this season, which puts them fifteenth in the league which I think is exactly where they are in, in the actual table. So that tells you quite a lot. Um, they're 19th for shots on target over the whole season. They're 20th for shooting accuracy and also for, for shot conversion. So where is the correction coming from? To me, to me, it looks like Arsenal are getting exactly what they deserve. And Arteta, everything he says suggests to me that he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Mm. I expected much more from him. I expected much more from him. You know, he highly rated in the game, worked under Guardiola. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this today. There's a statistic, uh, sorry, not a statistic, a quote bouncing around Twitter um, where he says, just bear with me a little bit with with this. When you look at the perspective of how we are losing football matches and and how we are where we are, it's pretty incredible. Last year, we won the game against Everton at home with a 25% chance of winning. You win 3-2. Last weekend, it was a 67% chance of winning any game in Premier League history and a 9% chance of losing, and you lose. 3% against Burnley, and you lose. 7% against Spurs, and you lose. Don't talk about probability of winning games when you're 15th in the league. You know, there are managers who can get away with talking about deep statistics and XG. Don't mention any of this at the moment, Michael Arteta, because whatever is going on, this is a sustained run of form. We're not three, four games into the season now. We're, we're, you know, what is it, 13, 14 games into the season? Christmas is is this week. You need to start coming up with answers. I, I think Arsenal fans expected much more. I know Edu has come out recently and, and said that they they still back him, they still believe him. I, I, I feel like surely that their faith is wavering as well because this is so bad. This is Arsenal's worst start to league season since 1974-75. Mm. Um, I, I don't see where the answers are coming from. Well, yeah, he doesn't have the answers, perhaps you could say at this moment, Graham, but maybe not even asking the right questions, I would say, because 
what is this Arteta team? Is the question I pose. What does he want it to be? What is his culture? What is the philosophy that he's trying to instill? And you look at, say, for example, Jurgen Klopp when he came in to Liverpool and they were a side that, you know, defended very badly and had lots of, you know, weren't quite going the distance they needed to. And they needed some some fortitude, certainly in the back line. And he completely changed that, completely changed the style of the tide, obviously, and molded it into his own image. Is there any evidence that Arteta can actually do that as well? And if so, what image is he going for? Because, I mean, I look at this game, for example, and I, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the phrase, they were anti-pressing, which sounds a bit like depressing. They were anti-pressing. They were dropping so deep all the time in this game that, like, th- there was a po- point um, where Everton were just l- allowed to take long shots early on with, with, like, no pressure at all. The first goal, there was very little pressure from the, the ball getting switched. Uh, from Davies had all the time in the world to switch the ball, to make a decision to, to Iwobi, and, and he, he had all the time in the world to make his cross. I think Saka, who's had a lot of credit lately, was sitting off. But, like, what, it, what is he telling these players to do? Because that doesn't seem very Arteta, well, that, for example. How, how is, what questions is he asking, and what does he want to achieve with this team, I suppose, is a question I'm posing. Yeah, and to be honest, I know I'm, I'm I'm on here to you know give an opinion and try and give some insight. I'm I'm struggling a little bit with what <laughs> Arsenal at the moment. I don't know. I, do, I, do, I genuinely do not know. It's as if Arteta wants his team to be on the possession side of things. He wants his team to be peak years Bar- peak Guardiola years Barcelona with you know death by a thousand cuts, lots of possession. Um, I was going to say quick passing, but a lot of the time it's not quick passing. And but then obviously a big a massive part of that Barcelona team that great Barcelona team was obviously as you say the the pressing side of things and that is just that is just not there at all and so the possession side side doesn't work when you're you're just kind of running the clock down I mean yeah. you know, it, it, it 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 works if you have the ball for eighty minutes of the ninety minutes but Arsenal don't have that they're just wasting the time that they they do have the ball and I, I just see a team that doesn't look well coached. They're not fighting for the manager either. I mean, we've talked about Solskjaer's faults as a, as a manager, but at least it seems like when when his team have dips, they, the, the team comes out and fights for him. I don't see that from Arsenal. Nicolas Pepe being a prime example. I know he scored the, the equaliser from the penalty spot, but other than that, what did he offer? He, he was up mm. against Ben Godfrey, who is a right-sided defender by trade. Play, he was playing at left-back. And yet it didn't seem like Pepe ever really had a go at him or, or had any sort of bravery in his, in his play. And I think that's, you know, there's there's an interesting thread between Everton and Arsenal at the moment because they sacked their manager at the same time last year. They appointed their new managers within, I think, I think three days of each other. And they actually played each other just through a quirk of, of fate. They played each other uh, before they made those managerial choices and also the two managerial choices they had were on the shortlist of both teams and Arsenal went for Arteta and Everton went for Ancelotti. And you just look at that Everton team with Ancelotti and you've got Godfrey playing at left back, but yet he still seems to know what he's doing. He's still well drilled in his responsibilities in that team. And you've got uh, Tom Davies in, in central midfield, obviously Alan's out at the moment through injury, but yet the structure of the team's still there. The, the, the feel of the team is still, you know, right. Sigurdsson obviously playing in the Hames role as well. And yet you mm. Arsenal and you just don't see any of that coaching. You don't see any of that consistency in culture and tactics and just attitude. That's really worrying, I think. 
That is worrying. I think that's an interesting point about that sliding doors moment when those managers were fired as well. Very interesting there. But to, to, to be fair to Arsenal, they didn't have a full-strength side here. They had Ceballos and Elneny in the middle of the park. Partey wasn't here. or Aubameyang wasn't up top. They had a front line of Pepe, as you mentioned, and Ketia and Willian. Oh, boy. Uh, and I think they did respond quite well when they went a goal down. They forced at least one or two good saves out of Pickford. And I think what, David Lewis hit the post at one point. But still, just not good enough. No no confidence, no creativity, very sloppy, lots of misplaced passes going on. Just, I don't know, it just it seems, it seems unbefitting of Arsenal. And also, I, I think there was some bad discipline here. We've seen some bad, dis- poor discipline from this side has been quite a theme uh, under Arteta. We know he's got the most red cards in, he, he, I think seven red cards under Arteta they've got, which is more than any other team in that time. Uh, and I think um, there was, Willock had a sort of nasty lunge that looked quite bad at one point. They, they do look like they're on the edge of, uh, of, of getting more red cards at any given point as well. Just not a, not a good time for Arsenal at all, but um, a good time for Everton, of course, who started the season very well and who are do, uh, look, looking quite uh, quite healthy in their league position at the moment. We had uh, Yerry Mina looking excellent in this game. It was like the World Cup all over again with that really good header from a corner. Um, uh, Dominic Cavalloon was on great form in this game. Ben Goffrey, uh, as you mentioned, was excellent. Decore was great. And their system worked very well. That low block that uh, Arteta was complaining about worked very well. I thought, you know, uh, Mina and Keane in the back line were just superb in this game. So they've certainly, uh, it seems like, they're they're the horse to back at the moment in terms of who's going to finish high. That's not a very intelligent thing to say because Arsenal were in 15th. But what do you think about Everton as a top four contender, Graham? Do you think they've got the what it takes to go to distance? Because obviously we saw them start very strong in this league campaign and fall off a little bit, but it seems like um, they're, they're quite sturdy at the moment. Yeah, I, I think, I certainly fancy them as, as top four contenders. I, I, I think um, they'll probably finish, it's a strange season, so, <laughs> you know, things can happen and this will maybe look foolish if they drop off drastically in the second half of the season but I, I would predict they, they'll certainly finish in the top six I think they've they've got enough about them I actually think this was one of their more arguably their most encouraging performance and result of the season so far just because they dropped when they dropped off it was because they had injuries to 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 James and uh, a couple others the uh, uh, was he injured for a little bit as well I, mm. I can't remember Alan's obviously still out injured but it felt like maybe their squad depth wasn't there, but but this game, as I mentioned previously, you know, Luca Dean is missing, uh, Alan's missing, Hamid Rodriguez is missing. So you know, you'd say maybe three of their best five players, if you're counting maybe Richarlison and Calvert Lewin as the other two, and yet there's there, this. As I said earlier, I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit, but the, the shape is is consistent, the approach is is fairly consistent, and that that to me is the sign of a of a, a well coached team and a, and, a, and a good attitude in, in that dressing room and, and um, I, I, I was no, uh, reading about how uh, David Ancelotti who is is uh, Carlo's son uh, has, a, has a very hands-on role on, on the training ground he's, he's 31 years old which makes me feel like I've achieved absolutely uh, zero. I mean, I've still got two years <laughs> on that, but I'm 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 pretty sure I'm not going to be an ever and you know a Premier League assistant manager by by the time I'm 31. Um, but yeah, he's the young. I think he's the youngest assistant in the Premier League. He worked with uh, Ancelotti at, at Bayern and, and Napoli, um, and he seems to be quite a key part of 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 that coaching setup. So you wonder how much of of that culture is is down to him. I mean, the most I do for my dad is like sort out a problem with his phone or you know. <laughs> 
But yeah, a, a, a well-coached team to round up, a well-coached team, and I think it's that structure, not just the the players that they have, and they have good players. I think that's really their main asset, actually, if, if they're going to finish in the top four. A couple of years ago, Graham, I followed Bayern Munich around on the US tour, and I, I got to Chicago, and I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel Bayern was staying at, and on the table opposite me, Carlo Ancelotti, and what I believe was uh, David Ancelotti sitting at the table, both looking like the most Italian men you've ever seen, sort of dressed very Italian, cross-legged, sipping from very tiny uh, China cups. It was, it, was, it was a wonderful scene to behold, but don't feel too bad about not being an assistant manager at your age and having achieved nothing, because bear in mind, your dad isn't Carlo Ancelotti. They're might be some uh, certain advantages that David got from uh, from that relationship, so don't feel too bad about that one. Yeah, if I'd had nepotism on my side, maybe uh, maybe I might have been there. <laughs> Definitely so. Well, certainly uh, it's happy happy uh, happy families on Merseyside at the moment with Everton doing so well and Liverpool getting a pretty good win at Selhurst Park seven 0 against Crystal Palace at the weekend. Oh, by the way, before we move over move on from this game, one more thing I saw on the internet, Graham, uh, which is a dangerous sent- way to start a sentence. But do you think there's any merit to the logic that? A lack of fans at the moment is saving Arteta, is keeping him in a job. Because if Arsenal were playing certainly their home games in front of a full stadium and the directors and the the powers that be were seeing the reactions of the fans live in person, that it might be a bit more visceral and a bit more, uh, the the hand might have been forced a little bit more. Do you think there's any logic to that? It kind of makes sense in my head. Yep, I think that makes sense. I think um, the fans played a big role in the the Wenger out movement, um, which Arsenal fans maybe might not want to be reminded of right now, given how the club <laughs> has been since then. But I think that was a big turning point where, you know, you have you have the the Arsenal fan TV section of the support and they were Wenger out for a, a number of years, but you still felt like Wenger had the support in the stadium. And then that last season it, it turned. And I think that was a big part of Arsenal actually making a decision on that. So yeah, I think there's some logic in that. I think... The, the, the stadium support is often a better gauge of the true sentiment of a, of a fan base rather than, I know it's only 60,000 people in Arsenal's case, but somehow it's a better prism to view fan opinion through than social media, even though there's more people on social media. Social media mm-hmm. to bring out more extreme views. So I think if the stadium had turned, then yeah, it's poten- potentially that that might have been a factor in Arteta already losing his job by now or, or at least being on the brink and it still feels like a, a Arsenal are a little way off from actually um, handing him his jotters yeah maybe so maybe by the time we've recorded and put this out there will be different news to that effect we just don't know it's a crazy season Graham and speaking of a crazy se- season we've got plenty more games we're going to talk about a couple more games we're going to talk about very shortly including uh, Tottenham's uh, trip to Leicester uh, no that was a home game wasn't it <laughs> and um, and uh, Leverkusen taking on Bayern Munich uh, we'll do that very shortly but first a quick message from our sponsors of today's show looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, 
courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. All righty, Graham, let's take our attentions to North London Tottenham against Leicester. This one finished 2-0 to the visitors. Uh, this one, uh, the essay is how to lose a title race in two games for Tottenham Hotspur here. Uh, Liverpool and Leicester losses have put Tottenham in fifth place in the Premier League. And that contrasted with Liverpool's absolutely dominant display at Selhurst Park. Uh, to, to start off talking about this game... It doesn't. It seems like the the momentum has somewhat turned very quickly for Tottenham in the space of less than a week. Yeah, it, it certainly has. I think the some of errors has gone out of of, of the balloon, um, and you know what? I think there's still some error left in there. I, I think they they had they've had a dip. I think it would be um, premature to say their title challenge is over just because every team has had a dip so far, and I expect. Teams will drop points over the over the course of this strange season, um, mm. before the end of May. So I think as long as there's a recovery from Spurs, um, they'll be okay. You know, Liverpool and Leicester are two tricky games as well. I mean, particularly Liverpool away, but even Leicester, you know, flying high, particularly the way the way they play, it's it, it's, it's a difficult matchup for for Tottenham, obviously because there's a lot that Leicester do that's quite similar to what Spurs do. So it's yeah. almost a little bit like the 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 double Spider Man meme. Uh, and so yeah a difficult matchup two poor results but I I wouldn't count out Spurs just yet double Spider-Man is an excellent way to describe this game it was like the counter-attack side got counter-attacked basically wasn't it it was it was Tottenham setting up in their typical play deep and counter but the problem was and something that Leicester did well and they didn't is that Tottenham didn't really have an effective counter in this game and you can look at um, later on in the game where you've got Le Son, Lucas and Gareth Bale uh, in behind Kane and that was kind of an ineffective front four uh, and the front four previous to that which we had uh, what was it Kane, La Celso and Dumbelli and Son that was interesting to me because we've been having this debate lately Graham about Ndombele and La Celso and who gets the space in the team they were both put in here both in slightly more advanced roles that didn't quite seem to work out for Tottenham did it? No it, it didn't and I, I felt just in general um this this was a match that kind of exposed the flaws in, in this Tottenham team. We've talked a lot about how how good they are and they, they do deserve a lot of credit for, for what they've done this season. But I think this was the downside of an individualistic attacking approach. So when it doesn't happen for Kane and Son, Spurs are in a little bit of trouble. You mentioned that that front four there of uh, at Kane, Son, uh, Bale and, and Moira was actually that I was. I'm going to talk about the, the opening day defeat to uh, to Everton, which is the front four that they went for in that game, and it reminded me of of that game where Mourinho just went a bit top heavy and and they didn't have anyone. They had four attackers on the pitch, but they didn't have anyone to get to get the ball to them, and and especially when Lo Celso comes off injured in the second half, um, mm. that they, they're the attacking midfielder down. Endombele is is great, big fan of his, but it's a lot of, on his shoulders to to be the the sole creator for for four attackers ahead of him, especially um, against Leicester, who you know are a well organized, well drilled team. And um, yeah, I, th- I think it also this was a match that maybe exposed the illusion of of Spurs squad depth. So on paper, they do actually have some good depth. You know, obviously the the big 
name as, as Gareth Bale, you know, Carlos Vinicius. Um, but as I say, when, when Lucelso went off, they didn't have another attacking midfielder to bring on. Of course, they do have another high quality attacking midfielder who could have come on, but he wasn't named in the nine substitutes that Jose Mourinho had for this game, a, a certain Deli Alley. Um, the subs, uh, the number of subs increased for this 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 Premier League weekend, and Ali Deli Ali still can't get on the bench for Spurs, so that doesn't bode well for him. You'd say uh, under Mourinho. Goodness me, I'd completely forgotten about Deli Ali. That's crazy. You're you're quite right there, and and it was unfortunate timing with Ondembele being subbed off and then Lascelles getting injured shortly thereafter. So um, things didn't quite go Tottenham's way there, but it just seems like. You know they they did they just, the counter wasn't there they don't they don't move the ball quite as well as the other big teams and they couldn't quite get away with it against the Leicester side who were very very well prepared in this game and they just ended up sort of lumping crosses into those um, those attacking players in the front and to Harry Kane it didn't it just didn't work out for them uh, there and and also we got to talk about the defence because Serge Aurier doing Serge Aurier things giving <laughs> away the penalty there uh, <laughs> um, a pretty ridiculous barge with re- Aurier reverting to type almost uh, there with a style Mourinho's style depends so much on defensive discipline it's pretty unacceptable to have Aurier doing that and of course this quote has been floating around everywhere Graham from Josie Mourinho in the Amazon uh, <laughs> documentary I am he's saying to Aurier I am scared of you as a marker because you are capable <laughs> of giving a poop penalty with VAR I've censored that quote there a little bit but basically uh, <laughs> foretelling what happened in this match and I remember the glare that Aurier gave uh, yeah. uh, Mourinho at the time in that documentary uh, very much uh, uh, just justified at this point but yeah a bit a bit of a shame for the back line here as well and also with the well not much that Alderweireld could have done about the own goal we didn't know it was happening but um and Jamie Vardy did very well getting on that old Brighton cross Jamie Vardy's movement in the box just showing what a quality striker he is for that but um just just not good enough from Tottenham in many areas of the field was it no, and that 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 Aurea quote from that that's one of the best bits of that. There's a lot of good bits in that in that documentary, but that's that is one of the best bits. And to be honest, you say you know foretelling what happened. It was it's that that quote was also given, uh, you know, in hind in, in hindsight of you know Serge Aurea has done this a number of times. I'm actually surprised he's actually been in decent form this season, but I'm surprised that Mourinho has embraced him in the way he has because he doesn't seem like a very Mourinho player in the way that you know, he, he is liable to do this sort of thing. And actually he's given away four Premier League penalties since the start of the 2017-18 season, which is when he he joined Spurs and only David Luiz has conceded more than that in that time. He's conceded five. So that tells you a lot about Sergio Rea. He has, he has a, a walking uh, penalty kick and um, uh, particularly with the options that Spurs do have on, on in that position, I'm, I'm surprised he's, He's played as often as he can, but I, I I I am wary of going over the top on Spurs just because they are still up there. I think. I mean, I'm not looking at the Premier League table right now, but I assume everyone in the top six is about three points off Liverpool at the top. So let you know, let's say there are three points off the top of the table, roughly. Um, and they've had two difficult games. I think also you need to give Leicester a bit of credit as well. They are a good team. Mm. This isn't a disgrace to lose to this Leicester team. Obviously, there's no fans in the stadiums as well so there's there's less of a benefit to it being a home game i think spurs will still be up there come the end of the season 
Definitely so. And for the record, Tottenham in fifth are six points behind Liverpool with 31 points at the moment. But that doesn't mean much. That's two games in this crazy, crazy season, which will have a lot more turning points for sure with their teams probably due another dip with the with the fixture pile up that is going to be coming soon. But you're right to credit Leicester there. But Jamie Vardy said after this game, they came with a specific game plan. They executed it very, very well. They got forward in big numbers. You know, I thought... The, their, their right side with Michael Brighton and, and James Justin, they were just superb. The way that um, for, for the second goal, I think if you notice, all Brighton puts in that brilliant cross, which I mentioned for Jamie Vardy, the way that he stops and waits for Justin to do the overlap to create space for himself. Just brilliant. And it, it, can we call him the budget James Milner? I think I've seen him refer to that uh, <laughs> at some point. He, he is good at those. Cro- he did sort of a very nasty challenge on Harry Kane, I seem to remember at one point in this game. But uh, all Brighton deserves credit. He's, uh, he, was, he was very good at getting the ball into the box on him, wasn't he? It was, and, and Albrighton is, is a strange one. I, I, you kind of almost forget a little bit about him. I mean, I know he was part of that the team that that won the title, but he seemed to he seemed to fade away a little bit at, at Leicester, and then he, he, Rogers has 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 kind of brought him back. He's not he's he's not really a you wouldn't say he's a, a key. You know, he's not one of the the first the names on the team sheet, but he's he still does a, a job. And it was actually match of the day last night here in the UK highlighted the the role. Albrighton and, and Justin were, were playing on that right side and and just the way Albrighton's actually quite cu- comfortable playing at right back so at, at times James Justin is is playing as the winger Albrighton's as the right back and then you know they switch back to their 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 position on paper which is Albrighton further forward and it just felt like they they tag teamed uh, saw not not just in terms of doubling up but just making sure that they were never exposed that the space was always covered, which of course against Spurs is at the, at this season is, is really important and is something that other teams haven't done. And I, I just felt like the two of them, I, I imagine Brendan Rodgers has done a lot of work on the training ground, but also it just felt like those two had a a natural connection. They just kind of understand where each other is on, on the pitch at any given time. And I think James Justin, you've 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 um, praised Albrighton there, rightly so. I think James Justin... Has has got to be one of the the fines of the season in the Premier League. Mm. I know I know he he signed from was it Luton, uh, not this summer but the summer before. But it's this season that he's made his breakthrough, and he's so important to the way Leicester play, not just as, as a defender, but in the way that they they play long balls forward. So there was a, a really good goal which was disallowed in this game by uh, by James Madison, which comes from a, a James Justin. To call it a long ball would really be doing a disservice. It's a long pass. He knows exactly what he's doing. The, the control from Madison is brilliant. It makes the pass, yeah. and then the finish is brilliant as well. But the ball from Justin deserves a, de- deserves a mention, and we've seen that from him a, a, a number of times this season, and that's why he's in my fantasy team. <laughs> <laughs> very good well if that was my team Wimbledon doing that pass it would be called route one and would be called cynical but I think you're right there it was perfectly placed that ball for Madison who I think we can agree was robbed by VAR for that goal it was a wonderful finish the way that he managed to find the space between Dyer and Alderweireld as well who offered him lots of space let's be fair um but yeah very, a shame that Madison didn't get that one and I think he uh uh, he he had a funny Instagram post afterwards where he talked about oh, was, I I've been robbed by VAR because my armpit hair was offside, <laughs> which I thought was quite amusing. Uh, but yeah, all, all credit to Leicester in this one. And one one other thing I'll say is Indeedy and uh, and Tielemans I thought were really good. We talk about maybe um, Dombelli and Hoiberg and Sissoko, maybe even Lacelso not being as effective as they could have been in this game. I think uh, that middle two for Leicester, particularly Indeedy, just kept them under wraps in this game as well. Just really really. 
good stuff from them. And there's a reason why Leicester are so high. Though. They're second in the Premier League at the moment. I think we can't rule them out. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to float the top four question again to you, Graham, but I know it's a bit meaningless because, hey, there's, there's, there's probably seven teams who could finish in the top four at the moment. But let's give credit where credit's due to Leicester for this performance once again. Yeah, and, and this is a sustained um, period of success from, from them. This is this is not a fluke. Brendan Rodgers, obviously last season they were in the top four until, what, the last two games of the season where they just fell short. I think this is the first time in their history that at Christmas in two successive seasons they've been in the top two. So that tells you about how they're starting seasons, certainly. Um, you do worry maybe this, the second half of the season slide may, may happen again. It's quite similar to... Leads in a sense that it's quite a high intensity, high tempo game. So maybe towards the end of the season they they start to get quite weary. But um, yeah, you're you're right to. I thought Ndidi and and, and Telemans, Telemans in, in particular. I know Ndidi in this game was maybe the more impressive of the two, but Telemans is such an excellent technician that I think he could he could be a first team starter for pretty much any team in the Premier League. And I, and I do yeah. mean that you know Liverpool, City, United, Chelsea. I think he would improve any of those sides. And and for Leicester to have him is is such a big thing for them. Definitely so. And one more shout out I'll give to the other fullback was Castagna coming back into the team as well. My fantasy team thanks him for his return as well. Um, all right, Graham, let's uh, move on to one last game here. We're going to go to the continent. Um, well, let's, before we do that, I'll give a shout out to Milan, by the way, who uh, I believe Rafael Leal scored the fastest ever goal in the top five leagues in Milan's 2-1 win at Sassuolo. Just six seconds. I don't know if you saw this. If you, if you haven't seen this, guys, check it out. Uh, go, go, go and watch a replay of it. It's pretty impressive how they managed to... The, the way yeah. they kick off is like, we're going to try and score right now. <laughs> it's, it's quite amusing. You don't often see them going it, forward with that much gusto, do you, Graham? No, it made me wonder why you don't, see that more often I mean I know it's I know you've got 11 players between the uh between you know the halfway line and 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 the goal but if I try and apply some logic to this you know when you kick off a a football game you're already halfway up the pitch and you you've got a lot of kind of players behind you to to back you up and then you've got an unsettled team that maybe aren't expecting it now this was obviously a (laughs) a bit of an exception you'd expect Sassuolo to do a bit better but it did make me wonder like is this something you know how now you see players doing the the plank behind the free kick wall because someone did that once and it worked and now so everyone does that I wonder if we might see this starting to become a thing just a charge from the halfway line at kickoff I really hope we do because it reminds me of my rec league games when when my team's five nil down we end up just shooting from um, from kickoff all, all the time just to try and pull one back because, because everyone's very frustrated. This isn't the same thing, but uh, very exciting to see that kind of thing. And Milan uh, top of the league without Zlatan involved in this game, who we've been told is ninety percent of that team. So make of that what you will. But the game we're going to focus on, Graham, is over in the Bundesliga, top of the table clash between uh, Bayer Leverkusen and Bayern Munich. Uh, Bayern Munich pulling off uh, a 2-1 win with a late, late goal from who else but Robert Lewandowski. There's this concept they talk about in Germany, Graham, called Bayern Dussel, which is kind of like Fergie time uh, equivalent in Man- uh, that Manchester United had back in the day. Um, uh, of Bayern Dussel means sort of Bayern luck, getting uh, very fortunate things to happen in later in games to uh, turn them to their favour. And uh, we can combine that with a, a new phrase to me, Neverkusen. Neverkusen being a, a team who tend to choke when they are in first position in the table. They switch places with Bayern Munich after this game. So uh, a, a combination of those two things seems to have resulted in a 2-1 win for Bayern, uh, which may not necessarily reflect the uh, who deserves the points in this one, Graham. No, I, I thought I thought Bayer Leverkusen were really 
good in this game. I th- they certainly deserved the point. Um, the way they, they went toe-to-toe with with Bayern, I, th- I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. I think had it not been for the, the couple mistakes for the goal, they, they might well have, have won this match. And it, it does, I know it was Leverkusen and you've, you've spoken about Leverkusen there and, and their um, their lack of luck or just a lack of conviction in being able to get over the line. But it did also raise, a, for me, a wider point about the Bundesliga because the chances there this season for someone to really challenge Bayern Munich, they've not been up to the standard of of last season. Um, their, their vulnerabilities seem to be a little bit more exposed or at least teams seem to be aware of those vulnerabilities a bit more. And mm. before this match, you had Leipzig drawing, you know, they could have gone top of the table had they won their match, but they drew, they drew it home to, to Cologne. You know, Leverkusen, they, they had the, a lot of this match. They could have won this at home. They, they could have, um, you know, really tightened their grip on the top of the top of the table, built a bit of an advantage, and they end up losing this match. It just seems to me like the analogy that comes to mind is, you know, you know that game Fall Guys that apparently all the kids are playing these days and all those little characters falling over each other and bashing into each other. That is every other team in the Bundesliga apart from Bayern Munich you know just tripping over each other trying to get to the top spot and and really just um getting in each other's way I, I, I wish one team would really I mean obviously Dortmund are without a, a long-term manager at the moment Leipzig I think have the quality but just slip up every time it seems like they can they can press home an advantage and then Lever- Leverkusen doing this which with the two mistakes which I, I think you'll probably talk about yeah, and Leipzig missing the chance to go top, by the way, with that nil-nil draw at home uh, with uh, FC Köln. But yes, the the um, it did seem like that um, Bayern are top uh, of the league going into Christmas, and they were given a very nice Christmas present by Jonathan Tarr, the uh, Leverkusen um, defender, who was pretty much at fault for for for, for both the goals. So uh, Leverkusen went went ahead in this one with that amazing strike from Patrick Schick, uh, a short corner routine which found Schick in the box with. A lot of space, more space than he probably should be uh, getting yeah. in in that in that part of the field when Bayern Munich are defending. Uh, so that that looked very encouraging for them. But then the, the equaliser comes from some pretty suspect defending with uh, Lewandowski getting an easy sort of free header. Uh, it was Tar was on him on the box and sort of Lewandowski pulls away, sort of takes a few steps backwards, pulls himself into space. Tar ends up uh, in a comedy of errors, uh, contesting the ball with his own goalkeeper, <laughs> which then falls to Lewandowski for that aforementioned easy header. So not great stuff there and then we had a, a tar at fault again in the 90 something minute what was it third uh, second or third minute uh, uh, the, the shot from Lewandowski getting a big deflection but it came to him when Jonathan Tarr had a pretty awful touch that let the ball run loose it was I think Muller uh, Thomas Muller who nicked it and put it in uh, Lewandowski's path for that one so were it not for those two mistakes from the person touted as Germany's number one centre-back, uh, then um, then then this would have been a very different game, Graham. Yeah, indeed. And and it just um, it just adds to my sense, you know, I, I want someone in the Bundesliga really to to rise up and, and, and truly challenge uh, Bayern Munich. It wasn't just in the defensive mistakes as well. It, it, you know, the number of four-on-threes or three-on-two situations that, that Leverkusen had through, I thought Moussa Diaby gave... Uh, Bayern Munich a lot of problems. You mentioned Schick there. He he obviously scored the the, the brilliant first goal and and had a couple other opportunities as well. Uh, and then I think it was Leon Bailey on the, on the right side as well. So obviously another sort of uh, you know flying flying winger uh, sort of player. So they had they had a number of opportunities which they could have made more of. 
Obviously, we've spoken before about Bayern Munich's high line. Um, Leverkusen were, were set up to, to to make the most of that, and and really that they only scored one goal was just down to their their bad decision making in, in the final third. Mm. I mean, they could have they could have scored you know three or four in this game and been out of sight. But by the time Jonathan Tad decided to uh, to give Leverkusen, uh, sorry Lewandowski, uh, uh, an early Christmas present. He did indeed. And Lewandowski, by the way, who's had a pretty good week being crowned the best FIFA men's player, which is always an awkward phrase to say. Um, and his manager, of course, not the best FIFA men's coach, uh, Hansi Flick, not getting that award in the midweek. Um, Jurgen Klopp being deemed uh, uh, more worthy of it. Jurgen Klopp, who didn't win a treble. Interesting uh, decisions <laughs> being made there. Uh, and Bielsa was on the shortlist as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, a, cu- a curious one there, but there we are. But uh, some very positive signs here for Bayern Munich, as we say, not least that Joshua Kimmich came back into the into the lineup here. I thought it was, it was great to see him and his tiny little pencil moustache, which is a wonderful addition. <laughs> and uh, I thought um, the, the, the fullbacks here were very good. Uh, Alfonso Davies was excellent in this game as well, wasn't he, Graham? Yeah. And, and Davies being back was, was a big factor. We I think we've spoken before about not just his attacking qualities but also just how he allows Bayern to get away a little bit more with the with the high line just because he has the the pace to 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 uh you know to cover in behind I thought that was maybe um maybe compromised a little bit by having Nicholas Sula on the right side who mm. is uh the size of a mountain and doesn't really um, doesn't really strike you as a natural right back. I know he can play there, but he's not he's not particularly fast. And and you know, um, Pavard and and Kimmich are obviously much better options in that position. So it felt like Leverkusen were were kind of targeting down that side a little bit, particularly with Musa Diaby with his pace. That was a bad matchup for Bayern Munich. But yeah, Davis being back is is a is a big thing for Bayern and and Kimmich who who really feels like almost the I know he's still young and there are senior players like Muller and Lewandowski who you might claim are the, are the heartbeat of this team, but it really feels like he sets a lot of the tone for Bayern Munich and, and whether yeah. it's in the centre of the pitch or at, or at right back. Yeah, so that's that's very good that he's back for them and certainly we have a bit of rest now as well. And one other player you just mentioned in there, Thomas Muller, I, I got I just heap praise on him every time we talk about him because he's just so wonderful. He covers so much ground in this game, and I, I think he was covering fullbacks at some point in this game. He's everywhere on this field, and uh, obviously got a, a well-deserved assist in this game as well. And for him still not to be uh, apparently eligible for the German national team still baffles me. Uh, although there's maybe less said about the German national team, the better at this point. But just yeah, wonderful stuff from him once again. Thomas Muller is 31 years old. I, I feel like he's been playing since the 90s. Yeah, he's still... He's brilliant, isn't he? He's, he's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think someone described him... Not my description, so I can't, thank, can't take credit for this, but um, like a junior doctor on a fun run, which I thought was a, <laughs> a good description of Thomas Muller and how he plays football. I mean, he's totally unorthodox. It shouldn't work, but he's a brilliant player. That is a wonderful description. I like that a lot. All right, Graham. Well, I think that just about wraps up our Bundesliga uh, um, focus there and perhaps our show as well. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we head off into the sunset and uh, and, and think about our holidays? Yep, just uh, everyone have a, a good Christmas. Obviously, this has been a difficult year, but uh, just try and enjoy what time you have with your, your family and uh, see you on the other side. We will indeed. Thank you very much, Graham, once again for your time today. It's been a blast, as it always is, on the Weekend Review with you. And we'll chat with you again shortly. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ryan.